Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. The moment today is such a textbook thing that this podcast is all about that we decided to let you hear it first before we tell you what the words that are being spoken and the musical cues are for you to listen for. It's enough to say that what this is going to be is a chorale, or a seemingly simple chorale, just a choir singing a hymn-like thing. In the case of the performance that we hear today of the Netherlands Bach Society, they chose four soloists to sing the part, and they're accompanied by a lute player. And it starts off just as normal as you could imagine. But on a particular word, it sort of dissolves and becomes something entirely different. And this is the kind of thing that makes us just really open our eyes wide. So let's hear the beginning of this chorale, including that moment. Last year, I was completing my doctoral dissertation, and I had a lot of downtime and a lot of time where I just needed to do something else for like 10 minutes just to clear my head of insanity. And one of the things I decided to do was take the Bach chorale book of 371 harmonized chorales and just play one every day. And people who play the piano or are Bach fans will know what book I'm talking about. And I have the Riemann Schneider version here, this little blue book that has all these Bach chorales in it. And it has hundreds of chorales. Most of them are just from cantatas. We know by this point in the podcast that a lot of Bach's vocal works were cantatas. There were a lot of parts of those cantatas that were like solos or big pieces for choir, big instrumental numbers, things that had really important instrumental parts. But they almost always closed with a very simple like hymn, right? Just a very simple spiritual song that we call the Bach chorales. And they're very interesting harmonizations, but they're musically not very complex in terms of instrumental flourish, although sometimes they are harmonically complex. So I'm playing through all of these, and most of them are in four parts, right? And the melody is on the top. We've talked about this, Alex, in a couple of our past episodes. And what we would call the soprano part, the top part, you would expect to find the melody in this style of music. And that's true of modern church music as well. If you use a hymnal, the melody's on the top. If you opened up your hymnal to Amazing Grace, then you'd better believe that the top part is going to be the melody of Amazing Grace. Otherwise, it'd be hard for modern people to follow, right? That's true. For most modern hymnals, I mean, there's some interesting exceptions to that, I guess, but... Yeah. Like the shape note hymn, like the sacred harp and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Aren't those kind of the tenor line is the melody? I guess for so. The, that's, that's a pretty obscure, though, I think. Mostly, you're going to find the melody on the top. Right. And so it makes sense to us, even with our modern understanding. But then I got to this one, number 316. I was playing about one of these every day. So this would have been like almost after a year of playing these. Just try to keep my fingers, keyboard skills pretty good. And just trying to hear some Bach every day, you know, good for the old mental health. And I got to number 316. The chorale title was Christus Der ist mein Leben. You're playing through it and you play the first phrase and there's nothing to write home about. It ends on an authentic cadence.
The second phrase, in this book, one of the words of text is written out from the chorale. That never happens in this book. This book is just for, like, to play on piano. It doesn't have words in it. But it says the word sterben on it, death. And that is where the music just completely unravels. And it's one note, and then another note, and then another, and another completely disjunct and harmonically strange, right? Those strangest notes that seem to come out of nowhere until they finally coalesce later and come back into the harmonic landscape of what we're expecting for the key that we're in. And it lands on a half cadence at the end of that. And it's just absolutely unusual and singularly strange in all of the chorales in this book. And I had no idea what it was or why it was like that. Didn't follow up on it until the Netherlands Box Society released this very short video for BWV 282, which is this chorale. Bach did have a chorale like this at the beginning of a cantata. And if you go and check out performances of that cantata, which is BWV 95... It's called Christus der ist mein Leben. That's a whole cantata based around this, uh, this concept, and that's probably the source of this simplified chorale. This chorale was probably written down later for use in a simpler setting, but it still has that insane Sterben phrase. This is just absolutely out of the blue, lightning out of the blue. It's very interesting. Yeah. And before we get into what the text means and stuff like that, last week we were recording our previous episode, and we always have to talk about what we're going to do next week. Alex said, what's next week? And I said, I'd like to do Christus der ist mein Leben. And so I played it because it's a little bit obscure, just the chorale by itself. And thank goodness the Netherlands Bach Society has seen fit to stage this beautiful little recording of it where they've got these four singers clustered around this lutenist. It's really lovely. I had the pleasure of watching Alex's facial reaction <laughs> once the word Sterben started. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd not heard that. And it's, it pretty much punched me in the face. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? Because that is insane. Because you just expect, you expect with these chorales, there, there's a level of expectation that it's all going to be this homophonic sound, right? Yeah, homophonic meaning uh, literally same sound, but the way we mean it in music is like chords, right? Yeah. Chord, chord, chord. Some passing notes maybe, but chord, chord, and then ending on a cadence. And then that again, and that's how hymns go, and that's how Bach's chorales almost always go. And then some of his other fancier choruses for these um, for these cantatas and other things have a lot more rhythmic vitality to them and separate instrumental parts like we've talked about before and all these other things going on. But for the chorales, it's, <laughs> for it to start as a regular chorale like this in four parts and then to suddenly just be completely split, starting with a high soprano note, well, high-ish soprano note, but it's really the fact that it's really unexpected it's an unexpected note and then when the alto joins that interval is so uh, so gratingly dissonant almost like very obviously on purpose just supposed to hit you in the face with this and that's what i mean it to me i love the i, I kind of love that feeling of just being like blown away by something that was written 300 years ago because yeah. to me it means that box music is still super effective you know like it still has the staying power if it's gonna hit me like that you know after all these years <laughs> right and in a in a way that you don't expect 
in a setting that you don't expect. That's what really gets me. Right. Is that this is just a simple corral, and you're not expecting anything crazy to happen. Yeah, he just had like, I don't know, he was just like, that day he had his coffee at a different time of day or something. I don't know. He just, he was feeling, that day yeah. he was feeling like, you know what, I'm gonna do something different today. Yeah, a very non-specific analogy might be like to think of somebody do, doing something that surprises you that you can't believe that they had that capability to do that. Like a, a child learning something and you're like, I didn't know they could speak. I didn't know they knew the word for that already. Or I didn't know they could they could pick up something yet or they could hold, they could walk yet or something. And then they just surprise you with the next time you see them, they can already do that thing. It's something like out of the blue, completely breaking format with what you think is going to happen. Yeah. And like we often say, it's an element of painting the text musically for dramatic effect because Baroque music is incredibly expressive. So this first line, Christ is my life, it says, The second line says, to die is gain, or to die is my gain. To die, the verb, is the German word sterben, and that is the word that receives so much attention by Bach here. That's the word that he breaks down. He chooses that word to basically kill the chorale, you know, like yeah. the chorale dies. <laughs> it becomes yep. it becomes a contrapuntal thing instead. It becomes a thing, an imitative thing, where one part, where the parts are all separated. One, two, three, four. And like you said, Alex, the interval where the alto comes in is not only dissonant from the soprano's note above, but it's also a note that's completely outside of the key that we were in. Also a strange note just in context of the whole thing. Then the tenor comes in with yet another strange note that also doesn't seem to fit within the key that we're in at all. Right. It, it's all it's all so dissonant. Each note that comes in, the tenor comes in on a G sharp, right? Yeah. Let me see that again. <laughs> Let me see that score. Okay, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And if you listen listen to it one more time and listen to the soprano note move down, it does move down during this. You can hear the soprano note enter by itself, then the alto enters, then the tenor enters. And at the exact moment the tenor enters, the soprano moves down a step. It's kind of subtle, but it's a neat, it's a neat little thing that happens there. Yeah, and that is the way the melody goes of this hymn tune. If you went to church at that time in the 1700s, you would know this. German tune. And in fact, there is a more boring, you know, straight ahead version of this hymn tune. It's not what's presented here. This one is very decorated by this very strange diversion where this chorale like sort of is attacked in its during its second phrase, but it does have a normal version as well. The cadence that happens at the end of the word sterben here, it does kind of land on something a little more consonant, although it's still like waiting for a resolution, right? It does, it can't end there. When you hear that, you know that's not the end. Right, it's a half cadence. We've talked about half cadences bef before in previous episode. It's a moment of partial resolution, but not complete. Yeah, and another thing that I like about this, if you listen to the soprano voice again, Try listening. All four all four voices come in separately, right? We said that already. Listen for the fourth. That is the lowest, the bass voice. When it comes in, the soprano is on a certain note. Then after the bass has already come in, 
In the next measure, all the other voices move while the bass while the bass stays put, which is just a really neat effect there. Right. You could hear the soprano step down again to meet that same note that the bass is actually singing, the same pitch. I mean, it's it's much higher. It's two octaves higher, but. If you listen for the soprano to move, and actually the soprano, alto, and tenor do move there, it's just a great effect because we haven't had them all move together yet during this Sterben thing. It just it hits you that, whoa, something weird is happening. All these voices come in separately. And then after all four of them are in, only then do they all start to move. And then it kind of starts to feel like maybe it's a chorale again. Right. And then it isn't till till the end of that Sterben thing that you start to feel like, okay, this is coming back to normal here. Right, coming back to consonants. Alex, you used the word consonant. I want to clarify there that we're talking about the definition for music here for consonant is that of consonants versus dissonance. Right. We're saying like a dissonant sound is a discordant sound, right? Like um, when you hear the beginning of where they start singing Sterben, especially between the soprano and the alto and then the tenor. And then a consonant sound is a harmonious and pleasing sound, like the very first word Christus, or the very end of any composition in this time period, right? They have to end with a period of relief, right? We talked about in episode eight, I believe it was, when we talked about Gottes Zeit, and we talked about the idea of tension and release in music and how that's really clear in the Baroque era, but it's clear in any era of music. There has to be some version of that. Otherwise, it doesn't have any like drama to the music. And that's what you're talking about, right, Christian? Another word for tension and release or another term for tension and release could be dissonance and consonance. Yeah, there's always a jargony music theory term for everything, but really it comes down to a very emotional reaction that we have to music, and Baroque composers like Bach absolutely took advantage of the idea of dissonance and consonance. So after the first two lines, Christ is my life, to die is my gain, with the word die being the one that Bach chooses to feature, the rest of the stanza goes, to him I surrender myself, with joy I depart. We've actually dealt with a theme like this before with the Gottesdzeit cantata as well. Yeah. The Netherlands Bach Society chooses to sing a second stanza of this chorale, and there are many stanzas in this hymn. The one that they chose to use has an English translation of this. Then, gently and calmly, Lord, let me fall asleep, according to your plan and wish, when the hour of my death comes. A personal prayer to think of when you're alone or dying or in crisis. Yeah, it reminds me of the last verse of Abide With Me. We talked about a little bit about Abide With Me in the Bleib by Uns episode. But yeah, that reminds me of the last verse, which has that Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Really beautiful poetry.
Martin Luther, who was <laughs> the first Lutheran, I guess. <laughs> he wouldn't have called himself that. Right, he um, actually hated that. Yeah, but name. Martin Luther, because Bach was a Lutheran. So going back to Martin Luther, what he had to say about music was that he was very much on the side of music is great for worship. We should all sing. We should sing in the vernacular language. So that means German for him. We shouldn't just sing in Latin because we don't understand it. Music is good for the soul and music is uh, the highest thing except theology for him, I think is one quote that he said. But church musicians haven't always thought that way about music. And people, important church leaders of the past have sometimes not thought that way about music. And certainly John Calvin is a good example of around the time of Luther of somebody who was a lot more austere about how music should be used in services but the idea of like this emotional tension and release thing would have been considered a little too emotional in an almost like carnal way they would have said oh i don't know about that that seems really that seems a little iffy because now we're introducing these ideas of like how do i put this instead of instead of them thinking like that it was this emotional pull they were likening it to like a carnal pleasure like the idea of this this sweet release of music and they were like, oh, that's definitely not belonging in church, right? That sounds like something that does not belong in church. So they, they would say, well, we shouldn't sing stuff like that. We should sing only the austere chorale melodies in unison, maybe. Something like this would have been unacceptable to Calvin in church. And I like to go back to like way back to the first couple centuries of the church and look at St. Augustine, a famous writer and theologian, St. Augustine or Augustine of the early church. And he had his confessions and in confession 10 i think it is he talks all about how he feels when he's singing the psalms as a monk and he's just like i, I don't know i'm i'm feeling a little too emotional i'm worried that when i'm singing the psalms i'm kind of glorifying the emotion of the music and i'm not really praising god enough so i think people have really struggled with that a lot but in the baroque era my point is to say is that in the baroque era this stuff was at its height of emotionality Right. emotionalism is really the right word, uh, in the music. And I, I think that it, it's really subjective where you come down on this. What what kind of music? It's the, the fight is happening today, too. And, and especially if there are people that are for or against, like, the broad term that could be called contemporary Christian music. I mean, that's too broad of a term anyways. But, like, the idea of that, of that that is really emotional music compared to, say, more hymns. I mean, it's funny to think that hymns aren't emotional. To me, they're very emotional. But... The idea that contemporary Christian music is supposed to be like, it's supposed to trigger emotional reactions. And the idea of that being a dangerous thing is something that much uh, physical and digital ink has been spilled about on the internet. Yeah, It's just an interesting, it's an interesting topic. I don't really know where I'm going with this because I'm not, <laughs> not coming down on a side here too much, except for just to say that I don't like the idea of shying away from emotionalism in music in church because emotions are emotions are part of music i mean if, if you don't want to have emotionalism in music then just don't have any music but i think that's boring right emotion and music are so intertwined in a subjective way but just because it's subjective and not necessarily objective doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue it right and church music has it's always yo-yoed back and forth you know the the popular demand and law has always been a back and forth between what we allow because it's in fashion musically stylistically yeah. and what we don't allow because it's way too secular sounding or way too lascivious or whatever it may be and it's always been like that right i mean even even hundreds and hundreds of years ago to and to the present day only in the last several decades has the association between the instruments of rock and roll 
become finally detached from like evil morality, right? But now they're used in church all the time. And it would be silly not to use them because of an outdated and very old association with them. Sure. You might and, as well use and them most, most people that, this is another generalization, I suppose, but a good chunk of people who like contemporary Christian music are in the generation we would call baby boomers. So like, they're people who grew up, they're people whose parents didn't like rock and roll maybe when they were growing up, but they did, you know, the baby boomers did. Mm -hmm. Again, a generalization. But what I'm saying is it's all very complex, this whole thing. And the idea of associating like instruments with certain with certain emotions and stuff. I mean, it's it's just, you just can't go down that road without getting into just all this quagmire. Yeah, Bach took a lot of heat in his own lifetime from the people that were called pietists because oh, yeah. because his music was so humanly emotional. It's just interesting. The reason why Alex's conclusion I think is correct is that Bach is great because he was he had he was able to make musical use of all of his resources and he was able to do that because he was allowed to show expression in his music. Yes. I mean, it's not really a surprise that if you think of like Calvin's music, there's like a very tiny handful of hymns that made it into what we still sing today, and most of them are completely devoid of any musical interest because the rules were so strict. And then you had Luther's contemporary Zwingli who destroyed musical instruments. Yeah. So it's like, it's hard for us church musicians because we want to be open-minded to people's different belief systems and stuff like that. But if your belief system is that music does not belong in the church, well, then I can't help you anymore. <laughs> you know, like I want to be able to help you express things in the concert hall or the church or whatever it is. And if you take away those tools from people, music is a great tool. And when you take those away, that seems like a little bit of a tragedy to me. I guess. It, it does. And there's a biblical precedent for using music as a tool to worship God and to explore human themes. And that is the Psalms. We yeah. know that the Psalms were sung. Music is mentioned in the Bible all the time. Yeah. The, and the Psalms stuff, were and the Psalms were music. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We we don't have sadly we don't have like because the the music notation is either non-existent or just not understandable and all these things. But like we don't really know what the music sounded like to right. the Psalms. But we have the text and we know that it was sung and that's enough for me to say that that's like right there. That's all it takes for me to say that we should have music, uh, expressive music in church. Right. And thankfully, Bach, at least for almost, at least for most of his life, worked at places that believed that. Yeah. And that meant that he could write outrageous stuff like this and break the mold sometimes uh, for this intense effect. And now, here is that performance by the Netherlands Bach Society of the chorale Christus der ist mein Leben. It's about two minutes long, and you'll hear that moment twice because we get two stanzas of the chorale. Oh, 
If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to see the beautiful video of this chorale by the Netherlands Box Society, please see the link in the episode description. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Also check us out on Facebook, and we have an Instagram and a website, amomentofbach.com. If you go on your podcast app and rate us and review us, that helps us out a lot. Thanks. Alex, what will we be looking at next time? Next time, we're going to jump back into the St. Matthew Passion for a bit and look at an aria, a bass aria, Gebt mir meinen Jesum wieder. Until next time, enjoy those moments. (laughs) 